since since we it seems so intimate and so uh, so few of us tonight at least it feels that way to me i'm always inclined when it's this intimate to check in with you to see see what's what's percolating what's brewing any any dharma questions that you feel are impinging on your heart mind or any questions that have emerged from the meditation itself tonight or any of the instructions that were offered or anything that feels alive and relevant in your life, not just too theoretical. Um, are there any questions tonight or comments or descriptions just as a beginning? And then I have a few stray thoughts, although unformed. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Um, I'm Su Jung. How are you? Um, just have a question about grieving at the same time meditating. Grieving at the same time as meditating. Yes. Yes. So um, I recently lost one of my pets, and I'm definitely one of your one of your pets. parents. Okay. I'm so pets. sorry. Thank you. Oh, pets. I yes. see. I'm so sorry. So sorry okay. either way. Thank you. So um, I know that I've been practicing meditation for a long time. So um, it was one of the time that um, just just like um, not focusing anything, just just feel whatever I feel like it. But the thing is, uh, when I grieving my paths. Like, I'm still, like, thinking about so much. It's really hard for me to um, just let it go. It's, like, not, like, doing, like, laboring. Like, okay, this is just feeling emotion. Sometimes I label that. Sometimes you label it. Like, thoughts or, yeah, just feeling. And what about the emotion? The sad or... um, um, but the thing is, I just cannot label, and I cannot let it just. And so, let it what go. would you like to have happen? What would you like to happen? I have no idea. <laughs> See, it <laughs> it sounds as you speak as though you would like this grief to go away, and or and at least the part of grief that includes thinking re- repetitive thoughts about your pet, and. Grief has a way of going away when it goes away. It has a way of, it, it, at least my own experience of grief, it always includes a lot of memory, remembering, and then often with it comes very strong feeling. And, that those, and those thoughts connected to those feelings, they come in waves. They come and they go. And they really have, a, it's part of the, part of the organic process of, of metabolizing, of getting used to the fact that this, your, uh, your, your whole orientation has shifted. So it's disorienting, and so it takes a while to get used to it. Sometimes, though, the, when the thoughts repeat themselves a lot, it sometimes suggests that you're not letting yourself feel the full, the full emotional quality of it, the full sense of grief, sometimes. Um, 
I, again, I say that the thinking about and remembering your, your pet is completely natural. Now, wanting that to stop is, uh, is actually in one way like fuel that makes it more, more strong and it makes it more hard, difficult to bear. So that I think the first thing that I would say is, is as much as you're able to, to completely accept that you're having a lot of thoughts about this. This is natural. So somehow make sure that there's some acceptance of that. And then if you notice a lot of thinking, it just expand a little bit in those moments to just take in the full bodily experience that you're having. See if there's any emotion that goes with it in that moment and try to connect with the felt experience in your body of that experience. It's often when it gets grounded in our body, when it gets felt through the body, that it starts to uh, become metabolized and there's less fuel for the thinking. And it's much more of a settling. So the other thing that I would say is that often uh, their grief is, a, as we all know, because anything that we are close to, we will lose, basically. Anyone who is born will die, and any, anything, because it is of the nature to change, will leave in its wake a feeling of loss. We have loss as just part of our life. And with loss comes grief. That's a natural feeling of, of loss. But often grief uh, is mixed with aversion to loss. So grieving itself is, is just a, it's a tenderizing, it's a softening, it's a, um, it's a humbling experience. But grief mixed with aversion, with not liking, with, with non-acceptance is very tight and jagged and it makes us angry and cranky and, uh, and, that, and that kind of uh, a grief with aversion is often also what feeds the, the thinking mind, the ruminating mind. So I don't know whether... I think that um, if my pet was really getting old and I lost them, then it's a different story. And I think that um, sudden loss is more, it's, it's really hard for me to let it go and open up. That's the problem. And then um, I think that the process of grieving also um, involved with the guiltiness because of the sudden death. Um, so I'm not sure. I think that I'm still like, feeling guilty of what I have not done, like for about what I should have done. What you and should have done. Yeah, so the, that's another, <laughs> that's a, yeah, a form yeah. of the judgment of, of, that gets added to the, mm -hmm. to the grief. And so that, for that, for that kind of inner judgment, we try to, to feel, to notice that we're judging ourselves, notice that we're feeling guilt, to, and if, if anyone else was feeling guilty, came to you and they were feeling guilty and, and questioning, second-guessing themselves, you, you, would want them to, to, you would want them to be self-accepting. You would want them to forgive themselves. You'd want to provide a lot of kindness. So that's really what's needed right now is to be, be uh, completely merciful toward yourself because, you know, every, every death has so many causes and conditions, it's never anybody's fault. 
Uh, and the tendency of our mind is to personalize it and make it, uh, make ourselves to blame when really it's, it's just part of life. Um, but anyway, sorry for your loss. But forgiveness, kindness, very important. Anyway, good luck. I'm glad you're here, though, that you're listening. It seems like you're trying to care for yourself. Yeah, and just let yourself... It, I know you may not feel comfortable here, but as much when you feel that impulse to cry, just cry your eyes out. Just let it really... Let yourself really feel that. And let it wash your... thinking away. Please. Uh, is this on or my... Yes, it's on. Okay. Um, as it so happens, I spent our whole sit trying to get tears to flow. Trying to me. get the tears to flow. Yeah. <laughs> to, um, because we, we had to send our dog off about five weeks ago. Mm. Um, he was 11. We had him for nine years. And um, I feel like I still haven't. During the week, you know, I sort of put it off, like, okay, he's gone, and mm. I'm not going to feel anything about it. But here I felt like this is like a safe place to do that. So, so you're hoping to have, your, have a good cry here. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah the best laid plans. have the space to do that. So. Yes, yeah, so it's a natural desire. But as you can see, it's, it's not governable. We can't, we can't manufacture that on demand. It, and we can't manufacture the end of our grief on demand. It just, it has a life of its own. And Yeah, I felt like I wanted to kind of move it through because yeah. it is something that's stuck in the body and yeah. has to get out somehow eventually. Yeah. It's understandable and partly the desire to get it out is what keeps it stuck. Mm -hmm. So you really do have to, part of this practice, part of the cultivation of the the qualities of meditative qualities is that we uh, we practice a certain kind of and of course this grows as you do it, it practice a certain kind of confidence and faith in the unfolding of things because you you know from studying it you see that things happen according to causes and conditions not according to my will or my wish and so we just slowly slowly really get that on a visceral level that uh, that we just take care of the present and let what comes take care of itself because it's not governable, but understandable, especially when you feel that you're, that you're sitting on something that it's holding. But even that, if you could just study that feeling, like even right now, to just feel what it's like to be holding. Don't try to do anything about it or undo it and just say, oh, this is what holding feels like. And, you know, and if that's meant to break your heart, it will. I was thinking about that, that whole thing about holding also because I have this memory of holding his body as a big dog. So I was like, I would often like wrap my arms around him and go, this feels so good to give him a big hug. Yes. And I can still feel that. And then I was thinking, if I indulge myself in that, is that clinging onto his memory? Like, should I eventually just say, okay... Goodbye. You know, let go like that. I think it's both. It's let go and and enjoy that. I remember I was telling somebody else today that one of, 
I think it was my, one of my teachers, Anagarika Manindra, said that having pleasant memories is, uh, good karma is having pleasant memories. So for you to be able to recall something and feel the pleasure of that is, is it's a beautiful, wholesome thing. It, it may even gladden your heart. And, and that's partly how we accommodate the loss too, is we remember the good times. And I think that that's just a, seems so natural I don't, I don't think as meditators we, we need to be as manipulative of our experience. or We don't have to make letting go happen. We, we, le, we let go because we see that we can't really hold on. We let go because we're so much in pain from clinging. So we, letting go is something that comes out of our understanding, out of our care for ourselves, not out of some, this is what I should do and this is what a good meditator does. It's something that happens organically. It's like giving up addictions. People who give up addictions, they get addicted to something else until, that they, until they understand that, that the getting caught on the wheel of addiction is bringing so much suffering. It's the suffering that then becomes its own cause of letting go. Our consciousness is really self-correcting. It doesn't have to be manipulated. Even the, even the desire to practice is a self-correction from some understanding that you're mentally ill. And I say that in a very loose way, that we're all crazy. So, okay, I, I heard this teaching, I heard this practice, it, and it has this resonance. It sounds like it would be really great. And then we have this experience of all of a sudden there's this, what comes into the mind completely unbidden is this sense of Faith, it's called bright faith, we're turned on. And then you gotta be turned on enough to then, then have it be, compel you to, to then put your tush on the cush. And then if you put your tush on the cush, you start feeling what that's like and that just, that encourages you to then make this kind of effort. And then if you get in, really get into it, that makes you wanna really sustain the effort. And then if you sustain the effort, you get this, concentrated mind that makes you really happy and smooth and, and strong and feels really bright. And then when you feel bright, then you start becoming more mindful and you see everything more clearly. And that then helps you see, oh God, when I follow, when I follow this addiction, I suffer. When I, when I let go, I feel happy. And you start having wisdom. And then wisdom increases your, your faith. And faith increases your effort. And effort increases your concentration. And concentration increases your mindfulness. Pretty soon you're just growing in the, in the Dharma. But there's nobody in there that actually, it's just causes and conditions. One thing leads to another. You, you didn't have to have your arm twisted. So it's the same with letting go. And it's the same with grieving. We just, we just go through it. Try, and we try to go through it with wakefulness and with, with um, carrying whatever measure of dharma we've, we've understood, you know, the faith and the confidence and, the, and the, the willingness to show up. See, the fact, some people, if they're grieving the loss, they would not stop and say, let me feel what's going on. They would just keep... I have so many relatives that when, that when they would have losses... I'd ne- they would just be in constant motion, constant distraction. And it's not my way. I'd, 
I'm really happy that... See, I'm inspired that you're both here tonight after big losses. That's a, and that inspires other people. Please. Um, I have a... It's kind of hard to talk about this. I, um, and I hope I do it gracefully. <laughs> um, but I might not, so... My apologies in advance. Um, I'm having, I experience conflict over um, the practice of dana in our context a little bit, and the reason is that. Um, thank you. Thank you for speaking up. If it's hard. Yeah, it is. I'm nervous right now. <laughs> but this has been going on for some years now, and every week I, you know, feel anyway. It's not that I don't appreciate the teachings and want to give, but I feel like there's a bit of a mixed message in our society in that, yes, we should give from the generosity of our hearts, but the fact is that in a way, to me, it's not free in that if everyone decided I can't give, we wouldn't have our teacher, it seems to me that we wouldn't have our teacher and sangha anymore. And I'm not placing blame on um, you or us, but more on the fact that it seems to me, from what I understand, that the teachings developed in a society where people naturally, it was part of the culture to support the monks and part of the culture to give them food and alms and all those things. And now we're in a culture of money. But the reason this is so difficult for me is because when I feel like I'm getting that mixed message, I, um, I feel a lack, it, it builds distrust in me so on some please, level. Please remind me what the mixed message is because the nuns and the monks it was very much understood by the lay community that without their support for their requisites, they couldn't function as a sangha and then consequently couldn't give support to the community. So there really wasn't the same kind of understanding of this kind of implicit mutual dependency. So I'm, I'm not sure where the mixed message is. And you could say there may have been a mixed message even in the dana system from the beginning. Maybe. I, yeah. I guess it's just the saying that it's only if you feel moved and only if you feel that generosity, but the fact is that you and um, maybe the payment of the church, it's not free, basically. We need to pay for it. Someone <laughs> needs to. Yeah, the, the expenses of the church. And is... so, so there's part of me that almost wishes the message were... Um, we need to pay for this, and we don't know who's going to come forth with the money, <laughs> but the fact is we need, you know, this... I mean, I guess that's what you're... I, I hope I'm not the only one who's... Well, it, 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 there's lots of different reactions. The way that we've presented the Donna system in the West is a, is a made-up version. The, the best attempt to bring something that was very, that's a beautiful demonstration in the, uh, in the countries where it was, had taken root for thousands of years, 
the, the, both the joy that people have when they give, the, the acknowledgement, the almost quiet, silent acknowledgement of the mutual dependency is really beautiful. It has a fragrance to it that's, that my teachers were really touched by. I was touched by, you know, when I practiced in Burma, nobody ever had, made an ask but it was understood that I, would, that, that I was there because people had been generous and then I offered Donna when I left the monastery. And then when people would, I would go into the hundreds of people in the dining hall and there would be a family that had offered the meal that day. And we would, my friends and I would look at that family. They had offered for hundreds of people and you could just feel the, and see the, them beaming with the joy of having offered. And it was, it was just so moving. We would just cry. So all, you know, so that, the attempt to try to replicate some flavor of that, plus it was the first teaching that the Buddha gave to lay people like us, practice generosity. And that uh, the teachings are given for three reasons. They're, because they're priceless. Uh, so they can be accessible to everyone regardless of their resource base. And because it, it's, it can, if you really get into it, it, it can really gladden the heart. And it makes possible for us to continue. So try to do it, but it, there is an implicit expectation. So in that way, it's not free. That if nobody gives, we, we can't function. And that's just, a, that's a fact, but it's also a fact in the monastic world too. There's... There's very few places where there is an endowment where somebody has given enormous amount of money so that it doesn't have to be mentioned anymore. But it is a fact that we live in a money world, but it's not so different in the sense that there's mutual dependency. So, you know, I appreciate the, confu- the, the angst that goes with it. There's something, I, I don't like us having to ask every week or just or make it sound like an ask rather than a description of Donna. I'd love it, Donna just to actually emerge from people's hearts, just like the, 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 the letting go of stress or suffering, let it emerge from people's hearts. It's, it's not something you can force, but sometimes in this tradition, we, you, you gotta, it, it's, it's not so much about giving, it's reflecting on generosity and reflecting on whether you feel the impulse to give. And then what happens when you feel the impulse to give? Do you follow it? And then do you follow it in the rest of your life? And how do you feel when you follow it? And do you give, too, so you give, do you give too much so that you then regret it? Do you give not enough so you don't feel, it doesn't feel generous? How do you, so it's, it really is a practice. And I would like to present it as a practice every week, but we try to streamline it so that we talk about our financial needs. <laughs> and it kind of messes with the whole concept. Please. Can I share a little bit about that conflict? I Put really, the mic close enough to your mouth so I everybody I really can. appreciate what you're saying. I personally, not, not the Sangha weekly, but have problems with the retreat uh, idea of going to Spirit Rock and spending as much money on a retreat as my rent. (laughs) Anyway, and with that said, um, I also think that we have to look at the value 
that we gain from coming to Sangha. Um, when was the last time you went to a movie? I mean, it's $15 these days, which is... Do you, does everyone know what the average dana is? Yeah. About $3, yes. just to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And so what I look at is, and again, I don't try to get into it. I get into guilt myself, but okay, I throw down $10 to go to a movie, and I get two hours of entertainment. <laughs> and either I remember it or I don't. And I'm a trivia movie person. So, you know, it gives me some pleasure. But the value of coming to Sangha, to meditate, to hear the Dharma, where else am I going to get that? And the impact of that is far greater than throwing $10 into a movie, or even five dollars for a cup of coffee. I mean, when was the last time you thought of giving? When was the last time you gave five dollars to have a cup of coffee or a muffin? Um, and you don't think about it. Um, and so I think what Howie said, I just wanted to and my perspective as had sung a member, there is a mutual thing, a mutual um, need. Um, and if I don't give $10 to go to a movie again, guess what? There'll be m movies made <laughs> without my $10. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Noemi. Please. Thank you. Um, so a couple of questions ago, you were talking about faith and practice and inspiration, and you're getting a little excited. And what I wanted to ask about is inspiration. Um, I kind of feel like I'm in a place in my life where my practice has been plateaued for years. It's been plateaued. Plateaued. Mm. And um, I'm kind of, I think it's probably low-level depression, but I'm thinking a lot about wanting to retire, but I'm having a lot of trouble thinking about what I'll do when I don't work. And it's just harder and harder for me to kind of get going and to find inspiration. And in everything in your life. Yeah. Yes. But also I'm particularly focusing also on practice. Um, I sort of do it, but it's like... How do you do it, if you do mind how, saying? How do I do it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, what, what is that? I, it, see, practice is a kind of general yeah. term, but how we're engaged right, right. in our life. and is, It doesn't mean it's all about cushion, but it's... Yes. Um, well, in terms of formal practice, it's shamatha vipassana, 
usually to the tune of about a half an hour at a time. I used to practice a lot more. A lot, uh-huh. Um, uh, when I was a lot younger, I was involved with uh, Tibetan Vajrayana stuff. And at some point, that stopped feeling helpful or... Mm-hmm. It started feeling very mechanical and just con- kind of confusing. So I've been doing sitting practice for a long time, but um, I'm just not, I just don't feel a lot of inspiration. And I'm not sure kind of where to, how to plug back in. Mm-hmm. And so does it feel like it's th- like you, is it, is it uh, have a, a flavor of doubt to it? About the, about the value or about, you know, given what Noemi was speaking about, or is it, is it... It's, um, it's like I, I'm inspired by the teachings, but I don't feel like I'm personally moving or changing or developing. I feel like I'm just kind of like mechanically doing everything. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like I need fresh air and negative ions or something. You know, it sounds like you need fresh air and, and negative ions, just as you're saying, but also to really uh, to let yourself really take in the, the state of your mind. You know, that whatever, that whatever the predominant feeling is that, that you're having. Because to say that it's lacking... It, inspiration, that seems to be a, a byproduct of some underlying, more underlying mood or emotion. Yeah, I think um, a kind of stuckness with depression that's, and a sort of shame, like I can't be happier, m- more insightful or kinder. I'm just kind of like so you're, stuck you're, with myself. Your affect is a little stuck. Yeah. And do you do things that gladden your heart, that bring delight and happiness? Yeah. And do they, or do they, do they... Yeah, do, they work while they're working. They work while they're working. <laughs> I mean, for example, like a really deep source of joy for me is music. And while I'm listening to music, listening oftentimes, to music. you know, live music, it can really, I can get you know, really, really turned on. But then I go home and I go to sleep and I wake up the next morning and it's like, bleh. Beautiful description. (laughs) The other thing that, uh, you know, I I think of is, are you, uh, do you have community? Not nearly enough. Yeah, sometimes what really drives people's practice is not having enough um, mingling of minds with other beings. And Sangha, Really do, offers that um, that support, that boy, that buoying. It's kind of it's that sacred power of practicing together, and, and it doesn't mean you join or anything. It's more just the. It's not just, and we as we talk about most every week, it's not just what you get from being with sangha. It's what you give, and so it's like it's a it's a place for your generos for your generosity of spirit that gets easily self-absorbed in our culture. Not, and I don't say that personal to you. I think it's just, we're systemically isolated and self-involved. And so, there, so whatever means we can find to, 
to widen our circle of affection and caring and activity, whether it's some kind of volunteering or coming to Sangha, those kinds of things really tend to spark some new life. There's the rub. And then doing a practice period where you actually, you recircuit your brain a little bit. You, it sounds like it's gotten a little bit entrenched in a, a little bit of a flat, flat line. And uh, just a little more sustained practice period, you might feel really refreshed. And one that's where you spend a lot of time in nature. Um, so go to the rock or someplace, spirit rock, or wherever it's nature and you can really practice with others. Okay, thank you. It's a longer conversation, but I really appreciate you bringing it here. In Anyone else? I thought it was interesting when we were meditating, there was a lot going on outside. Really? <laughs> and I felt like a live wire. I mean, I'm sure a lot going on outside, right? And it's just like, you know, just a lot of obviously there was fight happening and a lot of negativity and the music and just like a, I don't know, it was just interesting. I'd love your comments on like when you're meditating. And it just seemed like an interesting experience to yes. hear we're trying to find this deep sense of calm, but outside very close to us the world's on fire, you yes. know? And, and I feel like we feel it especially kind of here, too. So well, for, for me, I think some things came up. I wanted it to go away. I was, like, embarrassed. Like, we're meditating, you know? It was just, like, there's a yes. lot going on. So I would just love your comments. Like, this is, it no, felt like real, the real world a bit I'm right here. glad that you spoke of that, and uh, I hired them tonight. <laughs> <laughs> no, it... Um, you know, calm is a, it's a beautiful thing for us to be nourished by calm and quiet. It's a beautiful thing. And if we didn't have some measure of it, our practice wouldn't really take root. But, it really, but the calm is ultimately uh, developed in the service of, of developing uh, understanding, you know, all those things, I, that progress I talked about of, of wisdom, uh, to wisdom to know that we, we that our... Um, that we cannot depend on conditions for our sense of well-being and ultimately for our sense of calm. That the, that the well-being that we, that we long for has to be one that can pervade even when the world is burning. Otherwise, it's not real happiness. It's not real well-being. It's just, so, it's just conditional. And, and then we're always looking for the right conditions. And so that that hasn't made anybody truly calm. So we, we try to use everything to test our, our uh, equanimity and balance. So that ideally, it, there's so much you can learn about the intense noise and the kind of noise. And of course, when you hear people fighting, it's, it's hard to just put that in the realm of hearing. You know, on one hand, meditatively, we just hear sounds. And then our mind will then, based on perception, will tell us what those sounds were. But once we've already, once we're down the road where we know what that is, then it, it, we can see that it's a sound, but it engages our heart. And, and it, and it uh, generates some, um, some pain, 
some caring. And so all of that is part of the practice to both feel that. But at some point in the, in the practice, it's really important to discern the difference between just that sound, just hearing as, a, as the most simple bare experience that's happening, and then the, the elaboration that our mind does on what we're hearing. And it's often in the elaboration that we, get, we start spinning and we, we forget that we're, there's just hearing in a way. So if we, if we had just hearing without the sensitivity to what's actually going on, that would be, we'd call that one-legged emptiness. We, we know it's just empty sound rolling on. So we want to have some sensitivity to, the, to what's going on, but we also want to know that it's empty too. So you want to have both empty and compassion, empty and wisdom and caring. And both can happen, just even listening to those sounds. Uh, but like I said, somewhere in the process of meditation, because we're used to having the, the concern and the reaction and all that, we're not used to being able to know, I can hear that sound and have my mind not move. I can hear that as just sound. And, the, and it's not that the sound is bothering me. My, 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 ment, my, my mind's habitual reactions are bothering that sound. And that when I can see that the reactions I have to that sound are negotiable or, or optional, uh, I'm a lot more free to be able to hear that and to even then take in the, the meaning of it all, um, but with a lot less reactivity. But if I think, oh, God, they're ruining my, my meditation, which is a natural thing to say, hang on a sec. If I, if I, if I uh, get caught up in my thoughts, I, I'm falling into a kind of delusion, which is I'm personalizing something that's just a, a happening. Uh, if I can notice that, that's a great thing. That's kind of freeing. Then I'm not less, less personal. Please, in the very back. I think we need, you need the mic, if you don't, just because I can't hear you. Uh, this week, I posed the question to myself of like, wow, when I sit and meditate, I can really just, you know, notice my breath. And then I thought, how about when I'm just walking around, or how about when I'm driving, or how about when I'm at work, and how about when I'm eating, and how about when I'm, I was like, Fantastic, wow. thrilling. It was like, how do you do? I mean, you just really have to dial back in, dial back in. And I caught myself just kind of catching kind of the in-breath and the out-breath every once in a while. But it was like, I thought that was really kind of a, a good thing. You, any thoughts? Well, just practice? that is, you know, that is where the rubber meets the road is that you, is that you carry your practice seamlessly into every dimension of your life. It really felt like I thought, wow, there's been so many moments where I just, I feel like I haven't, I've been walking around like lost being in. without breathing. That's you know? right, that's right. <laughs> that's kind of well, it's, uh, it, it's a really common misperception that we tend to, to associate meditation with just what happens in the formal practice on the cushion when, when the same Buddha nature, the same wakeful quality is follows you wherever you go whatever you're doing so it's it's really making sure that you that you um, enjoy your capacity to 
be awake everywhere. Breath is obviously there all 24-7. Breath is there, but also attention, which is why we use the breath. It just helps anchor our attention to the present moment and calm our body, but it really is to, to remind us that we're here. And then, so without attention, you wouldn't know breath either. So that, notice that your attention is always available. So like you said, driving. And if, if the breath supports you staying aware, great. Fantastic. I think that's, I think we've gone over. I didn't get to give my talk, but it's okay. Anyway, thank you so much for your questions and sharing and your vulnerability. And I just so appreciate all of you and, and appreciate your generosity of being here and your generosity of support <laughs> and all that. And uh, always we like to consider that if there's been a, a benefit to us being together, which I hope there is, any blessings, any goodness, any merit, uh, any fruits of our time together that we, that, we, um, that we give it away freely and offer it uh, as a blessing to, to all beings and hope that through the people who have to live around us every day and them and you know, whoever they contact that we that the Dharma is, that the blessings are shared and that more beings can wake up and have happiness, moments of buoyancy and the causes of happiness and that less, there's less suffering. Our little subtle or radical social action of changing the world through one mind at a time and the wish that all beings can awaken to the the natural happiness of being conscious. Like right now, not missing this vital moment and never being separated from that. And then I wish that all beings can grow in serenity to be able to accommodate the sounds and the pain of this world with, uh, with less reactivity, with more open heart. And our practice today and every day be dedicated to all beings. May all beings be happy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.